0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
1: President-elect Joe Biden calls climate change the existential threat of our time and has proposed an aggressive climate agenda, including a sweeping $2 trillion plan to promote clean energy, an emissions-free electric grid, and an end to carbon emissions from power plants in 15 years.
2: We need to meet the moment with the urgency it demands, as we would during any national emergency. And from this crisis, from these crises, I should say, we need to seize the opportunity to build back and build back better than we were before.
1: But after four years of the Trump administration's climate denials, reversal of climate policies, and rollback of more than 100 environmental regulations, Biden is starting from behind. Joining me is environmental law professor Pat Parento of the Vermont Law School. Pat, how would you describe President Trump's environmental legacy?
2: That's easy. This was the worst administration in history. No administration comes close to the kind of attempted damage that the Trump administration has done to our environmental laws and institutions, not all of which has been successful. And we need to remind ourselves that much of what Trump has attempted to do can be reversed by the Biden administration, not maybe right away. Some of it's going to take longer than we might like. You know, rulemaking takes one to two years on average. But there is an awful lot of things that Biden can do very quickly, including rejoining the Paris Agreement and probably restoring protections for places like the National Monuments and maybe the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and places like that. And then in other cases, a lot of what Trump has put into motion or even concluded in terms of rules and policies have been challenged in court. And and as we've talked before, the Trump administration has one of the worst track records in court of any administration, something like 90% of their cases they've lost, according to the Institute for Policy Integrity, anyway. And so all of those cases that are still pending in court, the Biden administration can come in and either negotiate a settlement of the cases or simply confess that the decisions that were made by Trump were unlawful and flawed in a number of ways. And therefore, the matter should be remanded to the Biden administration for correction. So a lot of the damage that Trump has left us with is really opportunities lost. You know, we should have been making steady progress on climate change mitigation and air and water quality improvement and a lot of things that we've gone backwards on, or at least not made any progress on in the last four years. So that's probably the single biggest legacy. That plus hollowing out some of the institutions like EPA, crippling their scientific capability, stacking the advisory boards that are supposed to be objective scientists with industry representatives, for example, demoralizing the staff of EPA so that many of them have left. And a lot of the institutional memory has been lost, at least for now. So rebuilding these institutions is going to take some time i remember that in the reagan years we had some similar setbacks and uh, i went to work for epa actually during the reagan administration when bill ruckelshaus was restored as the administrator of epa and i was enlisted to help revitalize the enforcement program at epa and it took you know several years to do that so that's what we're looking at now for the next 4 years is repairing, rebuilding, restoring, and then hopefully making some serious progress.
1: So is there anything that the Trump administration has done that can't be undone?
2: I don't think so. You know, undoubtedly, there is more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere today than there would have been, certainly if Hillary Clinton had been elected. So that's permanent. The amount of emissions that could have been avoided and prevented we can't get those back. And some of the damage from air pollution and water pollution at least in the relatively long term, that is it's going to take a while to undo some of the pollution that occurred. For example, when Andrew Wheeler, the EPA administrator, declared that because of COVID, industries were no longer going to be required to comply with their permits. If you remember, we we went through about 4 months of this immunity order that he issued. You know, that's pollution that was never monitored and measured. So we don't know, actually, today how much pollution went into the air and went into the water during that period of grace, if you want to call it that, that Wheeler gave the industry. So there are some things like that where you can't undo some of the damage, but I don't think those kinds of impacts are as serious as the failure to really make meaningful progress on transitioning to cleaner energy. If the clean power plan that Obama had created had been implemented and the fuel economy rules that Obama put in place had been honored, we would be much further along on the path to clean energy and cleaner transportation systems than we are now. So those kinds of lost opportunities are really hard to recapture. But But that's what we're facing.
1: Pat, President Trump took action to shrink some of our national monuments. Can that be easily reversed?
2: Yes. We're talking about Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante, which are these two magnificent monuments in Utah and Colorado. And they really are spectacular. I've I've actually visited both of them. And with Deb Holland, the first Native American to be nominated to be Secretary of Interior, assuming she's confirmed, and she is a member of Congress, so at least she has that going for her, There's no question, but what the original boundaries that President Obama had established for those two monuments will be reinstated. In fact, Bears Ears will probably be the first one because she has a very close connection to that, being a Native American herself. That one can probably be done within the first hundred days. The Grand Staircase may take a little longer. It's much bigger. And, you know, Biden is going to have to pay attention to the politics as well as his legal authority. To restore the monuments, I think he's going to have to reach out to some of the communities in Utah and Colorado that were supportive of what Trump did in reducing the boundaries. I don't know exactly what he's going to be able to do to mollify them. But I don't think he can just simply ignore some of the political fallout of reversing Trump policies, because they were popular in rural America, and they still are. We have to take account of that. You know, Trumpism is still alive. 74 million people voted for it. Many of them are in these Western rural communities where these monuments are located. So, you know, Biden is going to have to figure out how he can offer those communities some kind of program or assistance of some kind to offset what they think will be taking back something Trump gave them.
1: Let's talk about the team that Biden has put together to handle the environment. What's your take on the team and the new EPA administrator in particular?
2: Yeah, very talented group of of people he's bringing into the administration. Of course, some of them are familiar faces. The new EPA administrator, on the other hand, is not a familiar face. Regan, who's the head of the North Carolina Environmental Department, I would say, is was not really on on very many people's radar. I mean, he's a black man, so it's pretty obvious that President-elect Biden owes his election, frankly. To the black community, largely. I mean, it's broader than that, but that was that was the impetus, the big vote turnout for him. So it's not just a matter of paying back, if you will, the the groups that put him in in, the, in office, but it's also looking for talented people in in those communities, those environmental justice communities. And and I think he's picked a good one uh, with Reagan. Um, and then of course he brought Gina McCarthy back uh, as climate czar. Uh, <laughs> kind of an unfortunate term, perhaps, on the domestic side. And, of course, John Kerry as the climate envoy on the international side. Those are two of the strongest, I think, possible people you could have in your administration uh, on climate issues. Um, And then CEQ, uh, he's brought in another black woman uh, who was formerly with CEQ and EPA uh, and who was with the Southern Environmental Law Center. Uh, for, for many years, and, and uh, so that's another strong addition. Deb Holland in interior um, is, is a first-time uh, uh, pick for that uh, position, uh, and so forth. So I think, I think the team has a lot of experience. Um, some have more Washington, D.C. experience, and some have more outside-the-Beltway experience, and that blend, that combination is, is probably a good thing. Um, I, I think, you know, being in touch uh, with what states have been doing, um, like North Carolina, on environmental justice issues. They have a lot of big problems in North Carolina with these massive factory farms, these hog farms that have caused tremendous uh, pollution in black communities and so forth. So, you know, he's, he's being true to what he campaigned on. He, he, he made environmental justice a major focus. And he's following through on that. And of course, with Kamala Harris at his side, I think we can be sure that we're going to be seeing uh, even more of that kind of uh, focus.
1: Pat, we don't know the result to the Georgia elections yet. But if the Democrats don't gain control of the Senate, will Biden have to achieve most of his environmental goals through executive action?
2: Yes, that's everybody's thinking. And I think that's true. On the other hand, you know, with this recent COVID package, which Trump finally signed after dilly-dallying and delaying and, and co- costing people some money, there were two pieces that the Democrats managed to slip into that bill that were climate-related, and they were important. One is a phase-out of what we call these super pollutants, HFCs. These are refrigerants primarily, and firefighting chemicals. And they're a combination of what we call ozone depleters. They're the kinds of chemicals that break down the ozone layer that protects us from ultraviolet radiation. But they're also very potent global warming pollutants, thousands of times, in fact, more potent than CO2. And so that was amazing that we have now committed the United States under what's called the Kigali Amendment. To the Montreal Protocol, to phasing out these very dangerous HFCs and replacing them over a fairly f- quick period of time, 2035. So that's a big deal in terms of, of climate. And then in addition, an extension of a lot of the renewable energy tax incentive, the production tax credit, for example, for solar, that was also included. So the point is, I think Biden is going to look for those kinds of opportunities with Congress not trying to pass a big cap-and-trade bill, which Obama tried to do, probably, not enough votes for that, but using these big money bills, budget bills, defense bills, you know, these what they call must pass bills, using those as vehicles to negotiate improvements on energy and transportation systems, and so forth. I think we might be optimistic in thinking that Biden is going to be able to score some fairly significant victories. Not as much as we need. Everybody knows that. We need a lot more than we're willing to do right now for climate. But I think he's going to be able to get some legislative victories. But mostly what he's going to be doing, certainly for the first two years, is repairing the damage that Trump has done and reversing the rollbacks, as they're called, that Trump put in place.
1: Could the new conservative majority on the Supreme Court make it more difficult for Biden to institute some of his environmental goals?
2: Yes, in short. Yeah, we all have to take account now of the fact that the six to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court is the most conservative court that we've seen, certainly in my lifetime. And it's a court now where Chief Justice Roberts is no longer the swing vote. You don't need his vote in order to reach a very conservative outcome. When it comes to environmental cases, the issues are going to be, you know, how far can the Biden administration go in interpreting our existing laws like the Clean Air Act in ways to aggressively pursue carbon and greenhouse gas pollution? That is going to be a real challenge. Again, we're probably not going to be able to go as far as the Obama administration wanted to go in using its Clean Air Act authority, at least as regards to things like power plants, which are integral to the way states produce their electricity, drive their economies. And so trying to use federal laws and regulations to control that vast electricity system in the country is difficult. And the conservative Supreme Court is going to be skeptical of EPA's power to really sort of reorganize the way electricity is produced and distributed across the country. But where it comes to things like fuel economy standards for mobile sources, for cars, primarily, but also you know, light trucks and other vehicles, passenger vehicles, You know that's traditionally a federal responsibility because you don't want to have the 50 states deciding individually what kinds of fuel economy standards to have. The industry wouldn't be able to cope with a situation where you had 50 different standards, right? So there's a situation where having a single uniform national standard for fuel economy does make some sense, even, I think, to some conservative justices. So what that means is Biden's going to have to pick targets and he's going to have to decide which kinds of measures can he take to address climate in particular, but other things as well that have the best chance of convincing a conservative court that his administration is not acting outside the bounds of the laws and the authority that they've been given from Congress. The big thing that the conservative justices are skeptical about is the growth of the administrative state, you know, having these, quote, unelected bureaucrats making up laws as they go or overreaching the authorities that they've been given. So the conservative justices are going to sort of police the boundaries of administrative authority very rigorously and with sort of a strict constructionist kind of approach to things. So Biden's just going to have to understand that and craft the rules that he adopts with that in mind and then take his chances. Because, you know, you never know exactly how these cases are going to come out because the courts are continually surprising us with decisions that the (laughs) conventional wisdom has been proven wrong over and over again. So that's another aspect of using your regulatory authority wisely, but taking some chances and not knowing for sure whether what you're doing is going to pass muster with five votes on the Supreme Court. I don't think Biden can administer effectively by worrying that maybe he's going to lose in the Supreme Court. He's got to take that into account and weigh the risks of that. But in the end, he's going to have to take some actions and then just see how it plays out.
1: Thanks, Pat. That's Pat Parento of the Vermont Law School. As the U.S. braces for a new wave of COVID-19 infections, the government's top infectious disease doctor, Anthony Fauci, says the country's vaccination rate is lagging. The government is managing distribution of Pfizer and Moderna shop with the goal of getting 20 million doses distributed before early January. Vaccinations in the U.S. began December 14th with healthcare workers, and so far only 2.13 million doses have been administered, according to a nationwide tally from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But even if vaccines are available, there's the question of who will refuse to get them. A Gallup poll published last month shows that about 4 in 10 Americans would not take a vaccine approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, suggesting the availability of shots won't guarantee that workers will take them. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Robert Iafola, who covers labor and employment law. There's been so much talk about when the vaccines will be available to different groups, but a Gallup poll shows that a lot of Americans don't want to get a vaccine. Yeah, there's been
0: a shift uh, that you can see in the public polling from the fall to the point that we're at now where the vaccine is being made available to healthcare workers first uh, before they start being made available to other workers. There was a pretty pronounced resistance that was reflected in polls again in in the fall, but you're seeing that um, reduce as time goes on. But there is still um, some resistance in the, in the population, as reflected in the polls.
1: So can employers require their workers to get vaccinated?
0: As a general matter, uh, the answer is yes. Um, there's nothing particularly new about uh, workplace mandates for vaccines, uh, let's say, in the healthcare industry. Um, You know, some hospitals will require workers to get vaccinated against things like influenza, uh, measles, mumps, rubella, these sort of things. Um, The situation is slightly different here with uh, the COVID-19 vaccine, um, in part because of how it was approved. Uh, The FDA used its uh, emergency use authorization um, authority to approve this in an expedited fashion. Um, which uh, creates some uh, complications that uh, employment lawyers are pretty divided on uh, whether it would give workers the right to refuse or not.
1: Just for a second, turning to that emergency use authorization, in that it states that recipients have a right to refuse the vaccine?
0: The law is not very clear. The the statute um, that uh, covers this it is not very clear, and this is a uh, an untested area in courts. Um, this is a, a unique situation here. We have um, with a, a vaccine um, that has been authorized this way. The sources I've spoken to um, are not aware of a, another situation like this. Um, the rules around this, the FDA, indicate that uh, individuals need to be notified. They have an option to refuse. Uh, whether that creates a statutory right to refuse that would sort of countermand uh, an employer's right to mandate the vaccine is, is very unclear. Uh, but if we do see uh, widespread mandates, it's something that's very likely to be tested in court.
1: Some of the people that you've spoken to say that the best thing is not for employers to mandate a vaccination, but to encourage a vaccination in different ways.
0: That's correct. That's correct. Um, Even setting aside this um, sort of unclear legal issue about the emergency use authorization, uh, there are other legal issues and simply uh, practical issues when it comes to um, creating a rule that says, hey, you have to get vaccinated or you lose your job. Um, There are other exceptions uh, when it comes to vaccines, generally, um, exceptions need to be made for people who have uh, health problems, um, you know, that if they're, for example, uh, have compromised immune systems and their doctors say they shouldn't take uh, a vaccine. Uh, there's also uh, some legal issues around uh, religious objections to taking vaccines, um, and again, there's, uh, some practical implications, uh, that come with this sort of thing. You may have a workforce where, um, you know, you have workers that are very valuable and that are difficult to replace. And if you have a rule that says you have to take the vaccine, um, then an employer might be faced with a situation where they have to let go of workers they really don't want to let go of. Um, so You take all these things into consideration, you add into it the complication of the um, emergency use authorization, and, uh, yeah, that leads attorneys to counsel employers to suggest that encouraging and facilitating use of the vaccine is uh, just overall a better idea than mandating it.
1: So even in at-will employment situations, can workers raise specific objections to getting the vaccine?
0: That's correct. The Americans with Disabilities Act um, provides uh, the right to seek a uh, health-related exception. And um, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, uh, which Title VII covers workplace discrimination, uh, including discrimination based on religion, uh, that provides for the opportunity for people to seek uh, a religious exception to a vaccine mandate. And it's notable that the way that the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission defines religion, it's not exclusively uh, you know, belief in a God or membership in an established church. The way they define it is uh, firmly and sincerely held moral or ethical belief. So again, that can extend beyond traditional religions.
1: So let's say a worker raises an objection to getting vaccinated. What does an employer have to do at that point?
0: So at that point, um, they they need to consider the objection and they may need to provide an accommodation, but uh, employers do have um, some very friendly um, case law from the U.S. Supreme Court that uh, basically, if they can show that it would be an undue burden to allow a worker out of uh, a vaccine mandate, then uh, they can refuse that objection. And the way that the Supreme Court case law defines it, it's a very low bar, what's called in legal circles a de minimis standard. You know, so it's basically anything more than a, a trifling burden uh, that can be considered an undue burden.
1: So you have a lot of businesses, let's say restaurants and stores, where there is interaction of the employees with the public. Are legal experts saying that that would be enough to raise an undue burden?
0: Uh, these are going to be very case by case situations, um, very fact specific situations. It's hard to say exactly. There may be a situation in which um, the worker can be shifted uh, to another position, uh, you know, back in the stock room or something uh, where they're not going to have that um, interaction with the public. And, and that could be a, a sort of a, a reasonable accommodation um, to the employer's requirement to take a vaccine. Um, In another situation, it may be that the only job that that worker can do is going to be in the public, in uh, contact with the public, and um, that to give an exception to that would be an undue burden. So, like I said, it's always going to be very um, case-by-case and very fact-specific.
1: Does it depend on the state that you're in? Is this a state law question or is this a federal law question?
0: So the authority for... Uh, business a private business to impose something like a vaccine mandate flows primarily from what's known as the at-will employment doctrine uh and that is what's in effect in every state except for montana and that basically says that an employment relationship is uh, presumed to be at will which means an employer can fire a worker for any legal reason so it can't be uh because you know they're a, a certain racial group or a certain religion, you can't discriminate against somebody. That's uh, that's not okay under the at-will employment doctrine. But under the at-will employment doctrine, you can impose a workplace rule, and if a worker violates that rule, as long as you're enforcing that rule in a non-discriminatory fashion, they can be uh, fired for that. So in this instance, if a employer requires Workers to take a vaccine and they won't do it, then again, generally speaking, they would have the authority to uh, fire that worker.
1: So, are legal experts expecting lawsuits over this? I mean, are they already gearing up for that?
0: Yeah, I've spoken to folks who do expect some of these questions to be tested in court. Um, the scope of how many lawsuits are filed um, will have a lot to do with. Uh, How many employers end up actually um, imposing vaccine mandates? It's unclear to me at this point how popular these are going to be. There's a few corporations. um, There's been some news reports. For example, Chipotle has said that they're not going to impose a uh, a workplace vaccine mandate. If they end up being, if there ends up being a lot of these uh, mandates, then there will be, you know, a fair amount of litigation if they. Uh, mandates end up being a pretty rare thing, uh, then there just won't be the opportunity for that many terminations to be challenged in court.
1: So one of the lawyers you spoke to said the laws aren't prepared to give complete legal advice on this matter. What, what did he mean?
0: Yes, yeah, so at this point, um, as I said, the law is very unclear. Uh, it's a very novel situation. Um, have pandemic to have a vaccine that's been authorized uh, using the FDA's emergency use authorization process. Um, The laws themselves are not exactly the model of clarity, how they're written. Um, So we probably won't get answers until these questions get litigated. Another complication is because this is uh, largely a matter of state law about how each state will evaluate its that will employment doctrine and what they think about the emergency use authorization, whether that creates a statutory right um, to refuse. That could be different in different states. Courts in California could look at the question and say one thing. Courts in Mississippi could look at the question and say the opposite.
1: This seems to be a unique situation where you have vaccines that are desperately needed by the whole population of the country, and yet the FDA allowing them under this emergency use authorization.
0: I think that's right. Um, the folks that I spoke with uh, were not aware of another situation in which uh, the FDA approved vaccine on this basis, and then that vaccine is being uh, in wide circulation. It does warrant mentioning that, um, you know, flu vaccines are, uh, a little bit different or often a little bit different each year because there's different strains of the flu going around. Um, to my knowledge, those flu vaccines are not being approved on the emergency use authorization basis. So it is a different legal question.
1: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Robert Iofola, Bloomberg Law Reporter covering labor and employment law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. Please tune into to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.